So here's a question I think about a lot. I don't know if you've ever asked this. Does following Jesus require blind faith? In other words, if you're going to follow Jesus, do you just have to put faith in faith? Do you just have to put belief in belief? Is it one of those deals you just got to kind of take a leap in the dark and just trust, just believe? I've been told that's true. I've been told I don't have enough faith. I've been told I need more faith. So if you engage with Jesus and if you begin to follow him, is this what it's all about? Is it about blind faith? Well, everything has a starting point, including our faith. And for most of us, this isn't true for everybody, but for most of us, our, our idea about faith or our framework of faith began when we were a kid. We had a pastor, a priest, a, you know, our parents, somebody that we respected who said to us, hey, you should believe that and you should believe that and you should believe that. And they gave us a list of believe that's, didn't they? And that became the framework for our faith. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not criticizing that. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I mean, my kids are now old enough that I didn't sit them down and say, hey, here's a book on world religion. Pick anyone you want. It's fine. It's up to you. I didn't do that. I, I gave them a framework, right? I'm, I'm teaching them, well, we believe that and we believe that. But here's the problem. The problem is, as we get older oftentimes, what was explained to us as a kid appropriately, well, a kid can only understand so much, so it was just explained at this level. But as we get older, it's never explained any deeper. It's never explained any more comprehensively. And so what happens? Well, the adult experiences and the adult pressures that we have in life suddenly don't add up or don't align with all the things that we were taught as a kid. And then there are gaps and there's doubts and there's questions. And so you go and you begin to ask, well, whoa, whoa, what about I was taught that, but then this was what you know, I experienced or I was taught that, but now I'm learning this. And you begin to go back and to ask questions about this and what happens? Unfortunately, what you're often told is, no, 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 your problem is you don't have enough faith. You just need to believe that. You just need to believe that. And you get more of that, have more faith, have more faith. You get the blind faith kind of answers. You shouldn't ask those questions. You just need to have blind faith. So over the last few weeks, we've been having a conversation around what I think is a very important question. What would it look like to have an adult starting point of faith? You know, if you could start all over as an adult, wipe slate clean, what would you learn? What would you read? Who would you listen to? How would your framework of faith look different than it is now? How would it maybe be more complete? What inaccuracies might, might you find in it? What things might you find in it you're like, oh, oh, there's more to it than that. I didn't know. How would it look different if you started over? That is such an important question because I think for pretty much all of us, as we grow older, we need an adult starting point of faith. We need to change or re-examine the framework of faith that we carried with us the idea of faith that we carried with us as kids. So if you missed any of that conversation, today we're in part seven. We're about to land the plane. You know, for those of you who've been tracking, you're like, what are we doing something next? We're about to do something next. We're, we're almost, you know, ready for Easter. So next week we will land the plane and arrive at our destination. This series will have gotten us ready for Easter. But if you miss some of it and you want to go back, you can download our app. All the messages are there. You can go to our website. Today I want to talk about another question and another topic, another issue that really is at the very heart of this entire conversation we've been having. And I have been dancing around this for seven weeks now, and some of you know I've been dancing around it. And you keep thinking, well, when's he going to talk about that? And, well, yeah, but he hasn't answered this question, and my real problem is with, okay, I'm going to be getting to that today for some of you, because I want us to talk about this question right here. What is faith or what is belief? What is faith or what is belief? And for, the, you know, for this conversation, for the context of this conversation today, these two terms I'm going to use interchangeably, okay? Faith and belief. I'm just going to treat them as if they're the same thing. What is faith or what is belief? The reason I want to talk about this is because I think this concept of faith, this is the most confused 
misused, abused concept in all of religion. The way we define faith, the way we answer this question, has created more problems for people when it comes to faith and when it comes to religion than probably anything else. I'm telling you, this has caused some of you to completely, you know, stick your head in the sand and be like, okay, I'm just not going to examine, I'm not going to explore, I'm not going to try to figure this out. For some of you, it's caused you to carry blind faith with you and you're still following Jesus. You just can't really articulate all the reasons why you should follow Jesus. You're just doing it. It's kind of like blind faith. For some of you, it caused you to check out and to go, no, no, no. I'm not putting my head in the sand. Christians are terrible about that. I'm way more intellectually honest than that. So there's a gap here, and if I don't get an answer, I'm walking away. And so you literally walked away from faith because the answers you got to this were not answers that were helpful. They were not answers that were good. In some some cases, they were answers that were harmful. So I just want to dig into this and tackle it for the next few minutes. Now, before we talk about religious faith, I want to talk about faith in general, and here's why. Because faith at its essence, is not a religious thing. It's not. Now, track with me. Faith is not a religious thing. It is a human thing, okay? All humans have faith, and all humans have belief. Matter of fact, we demonstrate faith all the time. doesn't matter if you're religious or not. You've already demonstrated faith today several times. You demonstrated faith when you came, and you sat down in whatever seat you were in. Because here's what I know you did. You walked in, You didn't think twice about whether that seat would hold you up. You just sat down, didn't you? You didn't sit there and go, whoa, 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 before I sit down, let's check the construction of this, let's put a little weight on it, let's make sure I'm not going to fall. No, you just had faith. You don't even think of it this way. But you just had faith based on previous experience, based on the experiences of other people, based on your past, you had faith, that seat that you're in is going to hold you up, so you just sat down. Same thing's true every time you get in a car. You have faith that the car that you got in is going to take you safely to wherever you need to go. Not a one of us, before we get in a car, say, whoa, 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 I'm not riding in this car until I get out and I'm going to check the construction of it. I'm going to make sure that everything is you know, secure. I'm going to make sure that all the parts are working properly. You don't go over a car from front to back and make sure it's safe before you get in it. Now think about that. Why do you just assume the car that you get in is going to take you safely to where you want to go? Because you have faith. Not faith in the car in itself. You have faith based on past experience, but you also have faith on the people who built and engineered and designed the car. And because you have so much faith in those people and so much faith over, uh, you know, in the track record of the car, that you just assume, yeah, that car is going to hold me up. So you have a lot of faith and you demonstrate big faith all the time. You didn't even know it. So maybe that was worth coming to church today. You're a person of faith. You didn't even know you're a person of faith. Now, there is a connection with religion and faith, but before we get to that, I want us to talk for just a minute about faith in general, about the kind of faith that all human beings demonstrate. I'm going to give you three big observations about faith in general, and then I'll start connecting the dots with religion, okay? So here we go. Here's the first observation. The ability to believe, or the ability to demonstrate faith, is the most powerful force mankind possesses. And it is an ability. There's no other creature on the planet who dreams about a future and what could and should be. My dogs are not home right now having a conversation around what should we do around this house to improve things for ourselves, and let's get Matt in on that and pitch that to him when he gets home. Nope, I don't know what they're doing. They're probably sleeping, eating, or pooping. That's all dogs seem to do, right? They're not dreaming about what could and should be. 
It's not a faith thing for them. They don't have the ability to demonstrate faith. Only human beings have the ability. And I'm telling you, it is the most powerful force mankind possesses. Now think about this. Every single human accomplishment and achievement throughout history has happened because of faith and because of belief. Every great human accomplishment throughout history has been made possible because an individual or a group of individuals had such strong faith and strong belief in a principle or in a preferred future or in their ability to change something, to create something, to accomplish something, that they would not stop until it happened. Back in the 1700s, back in the 1700s, there were a group of men and women in our country who had faith and belief in this extraordinary truth. They believed to the core of their being that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they believed so strongly in this that first they started using their words, and eventually they picked up guns and they fought the British to fight for this, the freedom to practice this truth and this belief. They fought to make sure there was a government built around this concept. And they believed in a better government. They believed in a better country. They believed in a better future for them and their descendants. And America was born. And it was born because a group of men and women had extraordinary faith and extraordinary belief. And that faith and belief led them to extraordinary results against all odds. They defeated the most powerful empire in the world at that time. You fast forward to the 1800s. And here in our country, there were a group of people who had such strong faith and belief in states' rights. They had such strong faith and belief that slavery was moral and necessary. There was another group of people who had such strong faith and belief in a strong federal government. And they had such strong faith and belief that slavery was immoral and should be abolished. That these two groups of people, based on their faith, began to use their words to argue, and eventually they picked up guns and they fought each other, brother against brother, and we had a civil war. And at the root of the civil war was two groups of people with two different beliefs, two different, their faith in two different futures, and they fought it out to see who was going to win. You fast forward to the 1900s, and faith and belief were at the very heart of what fueled the civil rights movement. If you've read much of your history, you know that the thing that kept men like Martin Luther King Jr., Ralph Abernathy, John Lewis, the Freedom Riders, all of the men and women who were a part of this extraordinary movement in our country, the thing that kept them fueled moving forward in spite of lynchings and beatings and bombings of their homes and false imprisonment and arrest, the thing that kept them moving in spite of stones and sticks and words that were so hurtful. The thing that kept them moving in spite of the threat of death and oftentimes death itself was their faith. It was their faith and belief in a better country and a better future. It was faith and belief that caused Martin Luther King on that historic day to stand up and to say, I have a dream. I have a dream that my, one day my four children will live in a country where they're judged not by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. That wasn't reality when he spoke that. It's still not fully reality today. But he believed to the core of his being, that's going to happen. And it fueled everything that he did. It's what caused him on the night before he was assassinated in Memphis to stand up in front of a group of people and say, if I die, if they kill me, it's okay. I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. And our people are going to experience freedom 
and be treated equal to whites. That was faith. That was belief. It is the most powerful force mankind possesses. It's what caused Francis Collins to pull a team of people together and say, everyone said, the human genome can never be decoded. He said, yeah, I think it can. And against all odds, they decoded the human genome. It's what caused John F. Kennedy to stand up and to say, we are going to put a man on the moon. And there was no technology for that to happen. Nobody had a clue how it would take place. But it was faith that drove him to believe that was possible. It was faith that caused Ronald Reagan to stand in Berlin and say, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. When no one thought that wall would ever come down. It is the most powerful force mankind possesses. And when you get an individual or a group of individuals who believe in something so strongly and their faith is so big, they will do whatever it takes against all odds. They will not stop until that future becomes a reality. Jesus said one time, your faith can move mountains. And it has. It's moved medical mountains, scientific mountains, financial mountains, political mountains, racial mountains. Every time there's a huge human accomplishment, faith is at the core of it. It's not just a religious thing. It's a human thing. And I believe it's a gift from God to all humans. But it is an ability only humans have. It's the most powerful force mankind possesses. Now, here's the second observation about faith in general. We constantly look for evidence to support what we believe is true. Isn't this true? As human beings, we are always, once we decide this is what I believe in, I'm putting my faith in that, that is right. Then we constantly are looking for evidence to support what we believe to be true. And we filter out any evidence to the contrary. This is particularly true of Republicans and Democrats. I just made you nervous, didn't I? I'm going both ways. Republicans and Democrats. Isn't this true in politics? This is, why, this is why you can take an issue and you can present a set of facts to a Republican and a Democrat, and they will come to two totally separate conclusions and interpret that set of facts in two totally different ways. Because they each believe what they believe is right. And so they are going to look at all times for evidence to support what they believe is true, to reinforce their beliefs. It's just human nature. You're guilty of it too. Think about this. When is the last time... When is the last time that you went into any conversation or you went into any meeting asking yourself or assuming, I think I'm wrong. Let me figure out where I'm wrong. You haven't done that, have you? We go into everything assuming we're right. Now let me find evidence to support that. I'll give you a really simple example. If you watch much news, you have a news channel or news source of preference. Okay, Some of you are CNN people. Some of you are Fox News people. Let's just use that. Now, if you're a CNN person or you're a Fox News person and you are flipping the channels one day, and God forbid that right as you flip on the channel of the other network, your remote control dies, and you're stuck with that other news channel on your TV, what do you do? I'll tell you what you do. I know because you're, you're really smart people. I'll tell you what you do. You sit there and you very calmly, very politely Listen to what people who believe totally different from you, you listen to what they think, and you keep asking yourself, I think I might be wrong. Let me see if they have an argument that shows me where I'm wrong. And you take good notes, you listen real well, and when you get done, you evaluate where you're wrong. That's what you do. No, you don't. You yell at the TV until you can get some new batteries and change the channel, don't you? 
This is what we all do. I mean, I'm not criticizing you. This is just human nature, right? You're going to yell at the TV and eventually change the channel because, because we've all done it, because you're not looking for evidence that might not support what you think is right. You're always just looking for evidence to support it. It's just human nature. So once we have big faith in something, once we have put our belief in something, we assume and believe with all of our heart is right, we're looking just for the evidence to support it. We're going to filter out any evidence to the contrary. Which leads me to my third observation, that belief is easy to maintain within a shared community of beliefs. Belief is easy to maintain within a shared community of beliefs. So here's what happens. You figure out what you believe is right or what you believe is true, and then once you do, you begin to surround yourself. You begin to build a community around you of people who believe just like you do. You know why? Because then there's a whole group of you who can reinforce one another's beliefs, and you can filter out anything else to the contrary. You do this on social media, don't you? really quiet in here. You do this on social media. You, you, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't want to totally unfriend them because then they'll know. So let me unfollow where I stay friends, but I don't see their post anymore because gosh, they're so liberal or man, they're so conservative. Like you just, they don't believe like I do. They don't agree. They're so wrong. So you just filter all that out. We all have a tendency, humans do this, to build a community of people around us who are going to just help us filter out anything that contradicts what we believe and reinforces everything that we do. Groupthink is incredibly powerful, but it's human nature. It's why Republicans all think alike, Democrats all think alike, rich people tend to think alike, poor people tend to think alike, Southern Baptists all think alike. Have you noticed that? Southern Baptists, anyway, so I'm going to get in trouble there. So that's, I grew up one, I can say that. So, so that's, that's just groupthink, it's powerful. This is the way faith works, okay? It's the way faith works. And this isn't a religious thing, it's just a human thing. Now, let me start connecting the dots and talking about what it looks like when you have religious faith and what religious faith is. And I'm just going to warn you before we jump into this, this is the part that's going to get a little disturbing, particularly for all of you who are Christians, okay? You're not going to like part of this, but just hang with me to the end, all right? Promise me that. So here we go. Let me define religious faith. Religious faith is simply faith applied to things of a religious nature. That's it. Here's religious faith. I, as a human being, have the ability to have faith in and to believe deeply in something. And I'm going to put that faith or belief in something religious. And suddenly I have, voila, religious faith. That's all it is. Now, you Christians are going, whoa, 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 Matt. You, you, okay, Jesus said, nah, like there's supernatural and da-da. And if you, okay, okay, just hang with me, okay? There is nothing supernatural. There is nothing extraordinarily special about religious faith versus any other kind of faith. There's not. It doesn't carry some extra mystical power. It's no different than faith the humans demonstrate in general. The only difference is I'm not putting my faith in a political party. That's political faith. I'm not putting my faith in money. That's monetary faith. I'm putting my faith in religious stuff, so I have religious faith. Okay, now, next thing. The religious faith is built upon a foundation of believe that. So what am I putting my faith in? I'm putting my faith in a set of believe that's. Every religion in the world, every religion that's ever existed, had a list of believe that's that were the foundation for their faith. Okay? So, for instance, in Islam, Islam teaches, they believe, that the angel Gabriel showed up to Muhammad in a cave and gave Muhammad what they call a sacred text, what is really a list of believe that's. That's what they believe. 
And so their faith is in a list of believe that's and an angel Gabriel showed up in a cave and gave to Muhammad. When you talk to Mormons, here's what they will tell you. Mormons believe that the angel Moroni showed up to a man named Joseph Smith and gave Joseph Smith a sacred text. There's a list of believe that's. And so they have put their faith in these believe that's that came from an angel and were given to Joseph Smith. You talk to Jews and guess what you'll find out? Jews believe that God showed up and gave a list of believe that's to people throughout the centuries. And so they have a list of believe that's as a foundation of their faith. You talk to most Christians, and guess what they will tell you? They have a list of believe that's, that they operate as if it's a foundation of their faith. Okay, any religion, you pick any religion you want. Religious faith is always built upon a foundation of believe that's. Now, one more observation about this. You believe deeply enough in any religious system and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is the really disturbing part, but this is true. When it comes to religious faith, if you believe deeply enough in any religious system, you believe deeply enough in any list of believe that's as a foundation for your faith, it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Here's why. History bears this out. Here's what happens. You find somebody who believes deeply enough in their believe that's, and they have a persuasive personality, and you strap a microphone on them and put them in front of a group of people, and it is only a matter of time before they will persuade those people to believe as deeply in the believe that's as they believe. And then as you begin to gather more and more people, you know what you have? You have a shared community of people who then begin to filter out any evidence that would contradict their believe that's, and they only reinforce evidence that supports their believe that's, and then eventually, they begin to see, voila, answered prayer. This is how it works. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, that prophecy came true, and that prayer got answered, and look, 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 why? Because you got a group of people who all believe the same thing, and what do human beings do when they all believe the same thing? They try to find evidence to support that what they believe is right. So they're going to find answered prayer, and they're going to see fulfilled prophecy, and they're going to see all of this stuff happening, and the next thing you know, you have a religious movement. Now, you know why this is possible? Because people who, put, who have religious faith, they put their faith in faith. That's why this is possible. When you put your faith in faith, or you put your faith in beliefs, or you put your faith in a belief system, then this will happen every single time. Because you're going to protect that. You're going to make sure to convince yourself and the people around you that you're right. And so you're going to see things that may or may not be there, and you're going to ignore things that contradict what you believe. The object of your faith, what you put your faith in, it matters greatly. And when you put your faith in faith, when you put your faith in belief, you're going to end up with self-fulfilling prophecies every single time. Now, real quickly, for all of us Christians, we are as guilty of this as anyone. We are. We do this all the time. Here's, some of you grew up in, in uh, contexts like this. Some of you have had this said to you. Some of you have said this yourself. You prayed a prayer that wasn't answered. Or you had a friend who prayed a prayer that wasn't answered. And they said, I don't understand. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and God didn't answer that prayer. Why did God not answer that prayer? And you know what the answer was? Oh, God didn't answer that prayer because you didn't have enough faith. You didn't have enough faith. That's why God didn't answer that prayer. You just needed more faith. If you just had a little bit more faith, it all worked out. 
Well, that's so interesting. Because what you're telling me then is that my faith is in me and my ability to have enough faith. And if I can have enough faith, that somehow faith is a mystical supernatural force that forces God to do what I want him to do. Wow, well, that's interesting. That doesn't make any sense, does it? You ever heard somebody say, well, I just believe God heals people. If you have enough faith, God will heal them, and then they die. It's like, what happened? And the answer is, oh, you didn't have enough faith. Really? Because I thought everybody had to die sometime. Like, this just breaks down logically for me. If this were really true, surely somebody like Billy Graham, everybody would have had enough faith and prayed hard enough, he wouldn't have died. So how does that work? That doesn't make any sense. Rash, that's not even rational. That's pretty irrational. Or here's the other answer. Well, God didn't answer my prayer. Why? And they will say, because you've got sin in your life. You've got to get all the sin out of your life, and then God will answer your prayer. Now, listen, if this is how you think, I'm going to help you out a whole lot. You ready? You can stop praying today because there's not going to be a day in your life you don't have some sin in your life. So you might as well give up praying. If that is the requirement for God to do something, then you're done praying. You can just quit. It's over. Because whether you realize it or not, you hadn't been loving, you hadn't done something at some point. That doesn't make any sense. So, the question then becomes, if this is the way faith works with human nature, and this is the way faith works when it's of a religious nature, then how do you know what religion is true? Maybe none of the religions are true. Maybe this is just all made up. Maybe a group of people just got together and got persuaded to believe something was true, and then they, you know reinforced one another's beliefs and filtered out all the evidence. Let's talk about Christianity. How do you know Christianity is true? Maybe it's a big Jedi mind trick. Maybe guys like me get up and go, you will believe. And somehow, you know, we have a mic on our head and we're persuasive enough that you just believe, you know. How does that happen? How does that happen? I'll tell you how you know whether something is true. You don't examine the faith. You examine the object of the faith. You examine the evidence. That's how you determine whether something is true or just a figment of faith. So, for the next few minutes, here's what I want to do. I want to explain to you why I'm a Christian. Some of you were starting to wonder, weren't you? You can relax. I'm, I'm still a Christian. I want to explain to you why I'm a Christian. And it's simply this. I am a Christian... Because Jesus' followers stopped following him the minute he went in the tomb. Now think about this. They believed that he was something more than just a persuasive guy with a mic on his head. They believed he was God in human flesh. And then he was crucified and buried, and guess what they all said? Oops, we were wrong. And they all fled they all hid for their lives. They assumed the same people who killed Jesus are going to come for us next. They all gave up. They all clicked the unfollow button. Think about it. Every single one of them did. They all quit following Jesus. After his death, there were zero Jesus followers. There were zero Christians. There were zero people who believed he was who he said he was. You know what they assumed? They assumed they had gotten it wrong. And he must be nothing more than a powerful speaker whose powerful speaking had eventually gotten him killed. You just read their own accounts. This is what they thought. Now, here's why that's so significant. Because that is not how religious movements get started. 
through history. Study your history, and here's what you'll see. Here's how religious movements get started. The leader dies, and their followers decide, no, 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 we can't let this movement stop. We need to take their teachings, and we need to do everything we can to spread them as far as we can spread them and get people to follow them. And so Gandhi died, and what happened? Gandhi's followers said, we can't let this die with Gandhi. Let's take his teachings and let's get this group to believe it and this group to believe it and this group to believe it. Let's get them to put their faith in Gandhi's believe that. And let's keep this movement going. Muhammad died and guess what happened? Followers of Muhammad said, we can't let Islam end right here. Let's take this list of believe that and let's make this group believe and this group believe and this group believe and this group believe. Because we got to keep it going. This is how it always works whenever a religious leader dies, a founder of a movement. The only way the movement survives is if the teachings get spread by the followers and they get more and more and more people to adopt it. But here's what's fascinating. When Jesus died, his followers did not do that. They did not gather in an upper room and say, okay, guys, we can't let these. These are extraordinary teachings from Jesus. We can't just let them die with him. Let's figure out how we can spread this around and get people to start following and believing and practicing all these teachings. They had not one conversation like that. And here's why this is important. Because at Jesus' core, his identity was not about his teachings. As a matter of fact, this is so different from today. Jesus' first followers did not look at him or identify him or think of him as a good teacher. People today are like, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher. No, no, no. They didn't didn't view him that way. They never identified Jesus or described him as a good teacher. Why? Because Jesus made the core of his identity not about his teaching. He made it about his claims of who he was. Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. God come down to earth. He never made the core of who he was about his teachings. He made it about his claim that he was God. And so when he died, his first followers, the reason they all unfollowed is they were like, oh my gosh, we thought he was. Clearly we got it wrong because God can't hang on a Roman cross and God can't be buried in a borrowed tomb. And there is no way we're going to spread the teachings of a man who claimed to be God and clearly isn't. At best, he's delusional. At worst, he deceived us all. So they were done. It was over. And yet, that same group of followers, just a few weeks later, in the same city, standing in front of the same group of people who were responsible for Jesus' crucifixion, have a completely different message to share. They go from hiding, they go from running in fear. I mean, you got guys like Peter, if you know much about Peter's story, he denies Jesus three times after he's arrested. The last time, a middle school girl walks up to Peter and says, hey, aren't you one of his followers? And Peter goes, I don't bleepity bleep know him. You ought to read your Bible. It's in there. I don't bleepity bleep know him. I mean, this, this guy was such a coward. And they, they don't hide that when they write these accounts. And yet, just a couple weeks later, you find these same guys who were such cowards standing in front of the same people who had Jesus crucified with extraordinary boldness and courage. How do you explain that? And here was the message. This is what's fascinating to me. Here was a message they shared, not just at the beginning. This is a message they all shared to the end of their lives. None of them changed their message. None of them even talked about Jesus' teachings. Here was the message they shared with anyone who would listen. It was so simple. You killed him, God raised him, we've seen him, say you're sorry. This was their message. In Jerusalem, think about this. In Jerusalem, the same city where he was crucified, 
on the day of Pentecost, Peter and the disciples are standing up in front of hundreds, probably thousands of people at a time. And this was all they said to him. They looked at him and they said, you killed him. And this was not like some general thing. Like the very people who had actually had Jesus crucified are standing in front of them. So Peter's going like, hey, Joe, I see you over there. You killed him. Joe, I saw you asking for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be crucified. You killed him. Hey, Sue, you were a part of that. You killed him. Hey, Marcellus, I saw you over there at the cross, and I saw you, you know, spitting your insults at Jesus. You killed him. Hey, Annas and Caiaphas, you two high priests, you were responsible for the whole scheme. You had him killed. This is how personal it was. Can you imagine? Just a few weeks after they'd run in fear, they're going, no, no, you killed him. God raised him. How do you know, Peter? Because we've seen him. So you better say you're sorry. This was their message. Peter was going, listen, we got it wrong too. I'm not throwing you under the bus. When he died, we all ran. We all assumed we were wrong. And then he shows back up and we see him alive and we said we were sorry really fast. I would suggest you do the same. This was the entire message these guys had. And it didn't matter what threats came against them. It didn't matter what persecution. It didn't matter what pain. It didn't matter what, um, in the end, death. None of it stopped them from spreading this message. As a matter of fact, Luke, Luke's an interesting character because he was a doctor, a physician. And when all this stuff starts being spread about Luke, uh, or about Jesus, Luke decides, whoa, whoa, i got to investigate this. I mean, who believes? He's a doctor. He's like, dead men don't come back to life. I'm going to check this out. So he investigates and interrogates in a kind way. He questions a whole bunch of people. Because Peter and John are going, it wasn't just the two of us who saw him. Like 500 people saw him over a 40-day period. So you can ask any of them. So Luke says, I will. So he goes and he asks them all. And then he writes an account based on his investigation and what he concluded. And Luke concluded, oh my gosh, there's evidence. This really happened. And he begins to write about all the things that happened as a result of it. And in the book of Acts, which is Luke's account of what happened after Jesus' resurrection, he says, Peter and John one day, early on, they go into the temple. And they begin to share this message with everybody in the temple. Again, we can't get this, but they're in the heart of Judaism. They're in the epicenter, the most important sacred place for Judaism. And they're going, everything you guys are doing now is irrelevant. No, no, it's irrelevant. You know that Jesus guy? You, you killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. You better say you're sorry. And the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas and their crew, well, they run the temple. So they're like, no, 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 you're not coming in here, Peter and John, and you know, spreading this message. We're done with this. So they have them arrested. They leave them in jail overnight. The next morning, they bring them in front of Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And they look at them and they say, we're done. No more talking about Jesus. We're done. You're not getting to come in the temple anymore if you do that. We're done. Matter of fact, if you say anything about Jesus again, we're going to have you killed. We're done with it. Now these, again, imagine this. We can't overestimate the drama here. Annas and Caiaphas are the two guys most responsible for having Jesus arrested and crucified. They've got all the power. They're the guys Peter and John were running from just four weeks before. And yet here they are in front of these guys being threatened with their life. And you know what Peter and John say back to them? Here's how they respond, Luke tells us. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes to listen to you, Annas and Caiaphas, or to listen to him, God? You be the judges, but as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now notice this. Peter and John don't say, 
Guys, we just can't stop talking about Jesus' teachings. They're extraordinary. Have you heard that love your enemies as yourself thing? I mean, that's unreal. Have you heard that, hey, I want you to love one another as I've loved you? That's incredible. We think that's a message that's really going to stick, and we're going to get a movement started, and then we're going to be big shots. So we can't stop. They don't say anything about it. They don't go, hey, we can't stop talking about his stories. They were incredible. Like that story of the prodigal son. Wow. Story of the lost coin, the lost fish. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, or lost sheep. Like, you, you gotta, we got to tell those things. We, we can't let these teachings die with him. No. They look back and they say, you guys do whatever you want to do. We're just telling you. We saw something and we heard something that has changed us forever. You killed him. God raised him. We saw him. We touched him. We had conversations with him. So do whatever you got to do. We can't stop talking about that. Not worried about the teachings. We can't stop talking about that. And every single one of those closest disciples, with the exception of John, they were all martyred, killed. Not because they wouldn't stop talking about their beliefs. People die for their beliefs all the time. But when's the last time you saw somebody die because they wouldn't deny what they had seen and heard? That's why they died. Well, Matt, how do you know that these guys all died martyrs' deaths except for John? They took John and threw him on an Isle of Patmos in exile to shut him up. The rest of them they just killed. Well, how do you know that happened? Because the Bible says so? No. Because secular historical documents tell us they died martyrs' deaths. That's why. These guys didn't write themselves into the New Testament as heroes to try to start some movement. Matter of fact, part of the reason you can trust the documents they wrote is because of how honest they were about what cowards they were and how often they screwed up. They did not paint themselves in a good light. But they all went to their graves because they wouldn't deny. You killed them. God raised them. We've seen them. If you've been with us through the series, all the way back in week one, we talked about Paul in Athens, Greece. And he, he had arrived in the city, and he was brought in front of the Oropagus, which was the ruling city council in Athens. And he was invited to share about his belief in the one true God and his belief in Jesus. They had never heard the story before. And so he talked about God creating the world, and he explained all of this, and about how God sent Jesus to pay for their sins. And then, do you remember what he says at the end? He doesn't look at them and say, let me tell you what God invites you to do. He invites you just to have faith in this story. It's a good story. He doesn't invite you just to hope it's true. Good grief. If, if this is that important, wouldn't you think God would give us more evidence than just hope it's true? Paul says he did. You don't need to put faith in faith or belief in belief. He gave you evidence. Here's how Paul puts it to the Athenians. He has given proof of this to everyone. What's your proof, Paul, by raising Jesus from the dead? Now, you can go and investigate that because about 500 people saw him, so just go talk to them. There's evidence out there. They're all still living when Paul's having this conversation. So, you know why I followed Jesus? Because everybody who followed him unfollowed when he died. They ran in fear. And yet, three days later, they all claim to have seen him. Not just one or two of them, not just 12 of them, like 500 of them claim to see him at different times in different places. They claim to have conversations with him. They claim to eat breakfast with him. They claim to eat dinner with him. 
I don't follow Jesus because the Bible says there's a resurrection. I follow Jesus because Matthew said, I was there. I saw him with my own eyes. Peter said, I was there. I denied him three times, and then he showed up and had breakfast with me and told me I was forgiven. John said, I was there. I had conversations with him. Paul said, I had a conversation with him. Thomas said, I touched him. Because there are all of these witnesses to this. And there is no explanation. There's a lot of other evidence. But just on this, there is no explanation for why these men would have su- do such a 180 and go from cowards to so bold and courageous and give their lives because they wouldn't deny what they had seen unless they had really seen it. So, see, here's the thing. Faith in faith is not very strong. Here's what faith in faith is. I'm going to put my head in the sand, and I'm not going to pay attention to anything that might contradict what I believe. That's not really faith. That's blind faith. What God invites you and me to do is to put faith in a very different object. Not faith in your faith, but faith in the evidence, faith in the proof of the resurrection. He's inviting you to put faith in a person who accomplished an event that is recorded in history. And you can check it out for yourself. He invites you to put his faith in Jesus, the one who has proven to be trustworthy. Not even to put your faith in Jesus' teachings. Now, I believe Jesus' teachings. You know why I believe them? Because he rose from the dead. And when you rise from the dead, it validates everything you taught. So, yeah, I believe that God hears my private prayers, that he's paying attention and he cares, because Jesus taught that. I believe that God invites me to be a part of his family and that he offers me unconditional forgiveness because Jesus taught that. I believe that God's for me and he wants a relationship with me because Jesus taught that. Not because well, the Bible says so, and I put my faith in this belief system, and this is just what I was taught growing up. No, because the evidence validates it. Because my faith is not in believe that's. My faith is in a person who did something that's verifiable. That is why throughout this entire series, I keep coming back to this question. I keep telling you, you got to wrestle with this question because it's the core question for all of us. It's a simple question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because if he's worth putting your faith and trust in, then you should do it. If he's not, you shouldn't. But you should never put faith in faith. You should never put faith in faith. Some of you, you need to explore and examine the evidence behind who Jesus is. You need to stop basing your opinion of Jesus on what a college professor said or some idea you got from Christians growing up or, you know, this book you read or this documentary you watched once. You need to actually get in and examine the evidence for yourself. We've created a group for you to do that. It's called a starting point group. It meets on Sunday mornings during one of our services. We're going to start another one in just a couple of weeks. We take a bunch of you who have questions and doubts and you're trying to figure this out. We put you in a room together. We don't tell you what to believe. 
We just serve as a guide to help you explore and examine the evidence around Jesus, and you can decide for yourself what you believe. Others of you, you know the answer to this. You know he's worth trusting, but you've never taken the step to put your faith in him. You've never taken the final step and said, okay, I'm going to trust you, Jesus, to forgive me, to bring me into God's family. What are you waiting on? You've got, you got to take that step. But this is the question around which everything revolves. So let me sum this entire talk up with this simple statement. Christians don't follow Jesus because of what he taught. We follow Jesus because of what he did. This is why. Not what he taught, what he did. How do you know if Christianity is true? How do you know if any religion is true? You examine the evidence. You examine the object of their faith. And what Jesus did is the object of our faith. If you examine the evidence and you come to the conclusion that the resurrection could not have happened, then you would be a fool to put your faith in Jesus. But if you examine the evidence and you come to the conclusion, the evidence points that it did, you would be a fool not to put your faith in him. So let me give you some homework and we'll get you out of here. This little bit of homework is something all of you are going to be able to do. I'm going to give you a question. I want you to talk about it with your friends, your family, your starting point group, your small group, whatever group of people you process this with, okay? And everybody's going to have an answer to this question. You ready? Did you find the message disturbing, and if so, which parts and why? Okay, because you've been in there going, whoa, Matt, no, 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 you can't know. That was wrong, and what about, and da-da, and that was double lodging. You got, everybody's got their own arguments. So half of you thought I wasn't a Christian halfway through the message. I get that, so... So you, you got something you want to talk about. You need to talk about it. Let me tell you why you got to talk about this, and I'll wrap up. If you ignore this question, if you ignore all that stuff rattling around, let me tell you what you're doing. Christians, you're the worst at this. You're putting your head in the sand. And if you put your head in the sand, you will never have a faith that can withstand the adult pressures of life. Jesus does not ask you to put your head in the sand. You know what he invites you to do? The same thing he invited Thomas to do. When he showed up to the disciples after he'd risen from the dead, Thomas was the only one not in the room. They went and told Thomas, oh my gosh, he's alive, we've seen him. And you know what Thomas said? The same thing you and I would have. You guys are smoking something. He is not alive. He wouldn't believe. And so Jesus shows back up. Thomas told him, I'm not going to believe it unless I can touch him. Jesus shows back up later. And he looks at Thomas, and not in a mean way. He just says, hey, come here, Thomas, come here. I get it, I get it. Go ahead, touch the, touch the scars. Touch where the nails were. Let's have a conversation. Check out the evidence. Jesus invites you to put him on the examination table and check out the evidence. Do not put your head in the sand. Examine the evidence, and you will discover a brand new starting point for your faith. Let me pray for us. Father, give us the wisdom to know what to do with this. Give us the courage and the boldness to do it, even when it's hard. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.